As we are living through a pandemic caused by a virus that has disrupted the world, the movie Mission Impossible 2 is even more relevant today as it celebrates its 20th anniversary. It's about a different virus set to be unleashed upon the world, all to sell the antidote. And oh, it's a love story too. Let's light this fuse! Hi, this is Tom Pizzato. And Dan Silvestri. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us each episode as we're cracking the code of spy movies. Subscribe to our show, tell your friends about us, and give us a great rating on your favorite app. We're going to break this podcast into two shorter parts so that we can cover everything. And we have shorter podcasts that some people have requested. Now, Dan, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this movie, there's a Beretta used in this movie. Yeah. I finally went to a shooting range and shot a Beretta for the first time last month. Cool. I'll tell you about that more at the end of this podcast. All right, so let's get on to Mission Impossible 2. In the first Mission Impossible movie... Ethan Hunt asks if they can get a cappuccino machine. In Mission Impossible 2, Mission Commander Swanbeck, played by Anthony Hopkins, by the way, asks Hunt if he wants an espresso or cappuccino. This is a nice tieback to Mission Impossible 1. Wait, wait, wait. Yet another spy movie with a coffee reference? Yeah. One of our sponsors is spycoffees.com. They're a veteran-owned small business offering a variety of coffee blends in both ground and whole bean. And even K-Cups. Get some double-agent medium roast. One of our favorites here at SpyMovieNavigator.com. Love it. Our listeners get a 20% discount on purchases when they use the code SPYNAV as a coupon code at checkout. So if you're a coffee lover, head over to SpyCoffees.com and order some very good coffee. Just remember to use SPYNAV for your 20% discount. That's S-P-Y-N-A-V. Great stuff. It is. Okay, so the movie opens in Sydney, Australia, with a pre-title sequence that lets us see a doctor working with a virus called Chimera. The real goal for Chimera was to create a reason to have the antidote called Bellerophon. This happens before the film starts. Dr. Nikorovich injects himself with the virus and has 20 hours to travel to Atlanta for after you've been infected with Chimera for 20 hours, nothing can save you. Not even Bellerophon. Now, the timing of this is really tight. Yeah. Because there's no direct flight from Sydney to Atlanta. So you've got to go through Dallas. Tom's done some and, research. Yeah, and that's, that's a 19 and a half hour commercial flight. And so if the clock started when he injected himself. That's pretty bad. He's got to get to the airport, get on a flight, get down on Atlanta and get to wherever he needs to get the Bellerophon. Uh, <laughs> That's All right. pretty tight timing. This is a short movie then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's doing. But as he walks out of the building in Sydney, Australia, the scene fades to a group of kids playing and singing Ring Around the Rosie. This is intriguing if you believe one theory about this song. Until Tom researched this, I did not. <laughs> I actually, I thought the song was about the Black Death or the Great Plague because that's traditionally what you hear about And that's this song. one theory. Yeah. With the plague, supposedly a red circular rash would appear on the victim. Flowers or posies were used to either cover the smell of death or to ward off evil, depending a pleasant on... little nursery rhyme. Yeah, depending on which theory... You read. But a lot of nursery rhymes are like that. They're pretty weird. (laughs) Anyway, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. 
Hey, that's fun, isn't it? All right. <laughs> yeah, it kind of brings up the thought of cremation there. Yeah, it's weird. So now here's where it gets interesting. In looking into it, numerous sources say this theory didn't become popular until after World War II. For a song whose known existence goes back to the late 1700s, one would think this theory would have been popular before the war. Yeah. Also, different cultures had different wording, which gives the Black Death Plague theory some pause. Anyway, as Dr. Nikorovich leaves the building, this scene and song reinforce that Chimera is deadly and can be unleashed to cause massive unchecked death. Very close to home these days. On the plane, Dr. Nikorovich is sitting next to Ethan Hunt, who he is calling Dimitri. Now, Ethan Hunt used Dimitri as an alias in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol as well. Now, the plane experiences cabin pressure issues, and they tell the passengers to put on their oxygen masks. There must be something in the oxygen, as all who put on, as all who put on their masks pass out. Now, this reminds me, of course, of Thunderball with when they're stealing the. Yep. The, the jet with the nuclear weapons is the same kind of thing. Boom, boom, right. boom. You're out. Absolutely. So a team of bad guys, including the pilot, don't put on the masks and are... That should have been a signal. <laughs> and are unaffected. And this is a little foreshadowing of how much masks are used in this movie. Right. So it starts off with the use of a mask that's not your traditional MI mask. Right. It's not somebody's face. It's, it's an oxygen mask that ends up putting these people out. Yeah. But there are other masks on that plane. Yeah. The pilot sets the plane on a course to crash into a mountain. Dimitri hits the doctor and stands up, pulls off a mask, and is in reality the villain, Sean Ambrose. The first use of masks in this movie. But this time, it's not the impossible mission force using the mask and the voice changer. Although we must remember that Sean Ambrose was an IMF agent sent by Swanbeck instead of Hunt who Dr. Nikorovich wanted, and who he called Dimitri. But Hunt was on vacation, and because time was critical, he sent Ambrose looking like Hunt. But here Ambrose, as we become aware, has gone rogue and to the dark side, so technically not using the mask as an IMF agent. The team grabs the briefcase that the doctor was holding and parachutes out of the plane, which then crashes into the mountain. I mean, we've seen this jumping out of planes thing (laughs) in multiple movies before and the plane crashing and so on. This just follows the same kind of formula, except this time you initially think it it is Ethan Hunt on the plane. So that's kind of cool. And then we move to the title sequence, and it starts out with Ethan Hunt rock climbing at Dead Horse Point in Utah. Yeah. I love this scene. It's visually very stunning with these red rock formations. There's a person up there climbing alone on the rocks. Well, the shots are real shots. Supposedly, no one would likely climb this formation the way the cruise is doing it here. He was on ropes that were removed by CGI, but for the most part, it is Tom Cruise doing this stunt. And according to John Woo, the director, he was panicking over this scene. He was like, this is it. I'm going to kill our star. (laughs) He's falling off off the rock. But it's just a stunning environment. I'd love to go there as a location to go visit when we look at movie locations. But I'm not a big fan of heights, as we've talked about before. So uh, it'd be interesting if you could get me up there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just gorgeous. Not getting me up there. 
one of the best things about the whole Mission Impossible series is that Tom Cruise performs a lot of his own stunts. They just CGI out the cables and stuff like that. They're still dangerous. This avoids clumsy camera angles or even worse, CGI face replacements a la some of the latest James Bond movies. As in Mission Impossible 1, there is always a slip. (laughs) You got to have one. In the vault. Yeah, the vault in Mission Impossible 1, the rope slips and Ethan almost hits the floor. In this movie, he almost slips off the rock. The only place to use his stunt double, Keith Campbell, is when he has this slip. Notice you don't see his face then. Yeah, now it's going to be interesting to see how stunts are handled when Cruz finally just can't deliver on the stunts as he ages. I think he's two months older than me. And it's impressive how he can do these stunts. Unlike me, he's in great shape and he can pull this off really well. Ron Koch was the climbing stunt double who teaches Cruz how to do most of the stunts, but then Cruz goes off and does them. The top of that cliff was 600 feet and another 2,000 feet down to the river. So as we said, John Woo was just petrified he was going to lose Cruz on this. Yeah, and the whole, the whole thing is going to be how they transition when Tom Cruise is too old to be doing this kind of stuff. Are they going to get another Ethan Hunt, like they got another James Bond, another actor to play Ethan Hunt? Or are they going to have Ethan Hunt be like the top guy now, the mission commander, and then other people do stuff? It's going to be interesting to see what they do. But well, they've got two more movies with him in it, at least. Yeah, and I think that's why they're doing seven and eight back-to-back from yeah. a record, uh, yeah. shooting perspective. Absolutely. Is My guess is they're going to do a handoff. Yeah. The IMF is built to be able to hand off who the lead is much easier than a Bond film. Yeah. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where they take it. I don't it. know if it'll be easier, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it and what structure they use to do it. All right, so he's up there on these rocks. At one point, Ethan holds himself in a cross pose. Mm-hmm. And with his long hair and that pose, It really reminded me of Ted Neely's portrayal of Jesus on the cross in the 1973 movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, especially the way he had his left knee bent. John Woo also used this imagery when he directed the movie Face Off. And there are some other similarities with Face Off in this movie, and we'll talk about those as we go along. Once Ethan gets to the top, a helicopter appears and shoots something at Ethan's feet. At first, you think the guy in the helicopter is shooting at Ethan. What gets me here is that it looks like the helicopter could have landed where Ethan was and maybe just tell him what they need to tell him. But no, <laughs> it, it flies off instead of picking Ethan up or whatever. And well, what, yeah, they could have picked him up and taken him to where they need, he needed to go. Yeah, but he was on vacation. <laughs> yeah, but he had Never. to end that vacation then. <laughs> yeah. What the guy shot near Ethan was the mission tape displayed on a pair of sunglasses that had augmented reality-type lenses in it. Ethan looks over the canyon, and the mission tape plays in the lens. He can see the canyon and the tape's mission and hear the audio. Ethan gets his mission, Mission Chimera. This mission involves the recovery of a stolen item designated Chimera. He can pick any two members he wants for the team, but the third member has to be Naya Nordoff Hall. She's a professional thief, and not part of the agency. She's a civilian. Now, let me interrupt you here for a second, Dan. One interesting note about that name is Nordoff Hall is on Nordoff Street and houses the California State University's Northridge Theater Department. (laughs) So I'm assuming somebody in this film went there. We have to believe that someone was having fun with this name. That's cool. And if we look at it, Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall, 
together wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh, that's cool. I thought it was kind of an interesting name. Are they setting something up here with that name, foreshadowing something in the movie? And in speaking of names, Nia was going to be a spy originally, Hmm. not a thief. The idea came from the Audrey Hepburn, Peter O'Toole movie, How to Steal a Million. John Woo originally wanted Tandy to have the same charm as Hepburn. We talked about reluctant spies in our podcast on the Ipcrest file, and there's something very similar here. Naya was a thief being recruited to become a spy, and she didn't really have much of a choice. Yeah. When you think about it, Naya and this story are right out of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Notorious, which we're going to do a podcast on. We have the reluctant female agent who is in trouble. In Notorious, the reluctant spy character is Alicia Huberman, played by Ingrid Bergman, which is, she's always fantastic. She is enticed to become a spy by the lead agent, Devlin, played by Cary Grant. She is to seduce the villain, Alexander Sebastian, played by the great Claude Rains. He is dealing in uranium to create an atom bomb that would kill many people. Alicia is poisoned by Sebastian when she is discovered, and Devlin finds out she's sick and rescues her just before she would die. So we have a similar situation here in Mission Impossible 2 with Naya. Okay. Yeah, because we can substitute Naya for Alicia. Yeah. Ethan Hunt for Devlin. Yeah. Sean Ambrose for Sebastian. And you pretty much have exactly the same story. Pretty close. And in MI2, there's a deviation here in that Naya injects herself with the poison or the virus. Where in Notorious, yeah. uh, Alicia gets poisoned by Sebastian. Yeah. Other than that, the stories are very, very similar. Yeah, we love doing the Hitchcock movies. We've done three already, and we're going to do more Hitchcock movies, including Notorious. Anyway, the your mission, should you choose to accept it, and as always, if any member of your IM force is caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions, are there. The tape, self-destructing, is handled by Ethan throwing the glasses, and they explode. This lights the fuse, and away we go. Lalo Schifrin soundtrack underscores <laughs> this theme, making the old Mission Impossible fan quite happy. The television show would switch out whatever device was playing the mission, the different types of recorders and stuff. So this was an updated way to deliver it, kept the theme there, both the theme song and the theme of the tape self-destructing. And it really, really looks good. Yeah, you got to love the music. The beat of the music, the whole ambiance it creates in your mind is just fantastic. You can't beat that. <laughs> no pun intended. All right. In this movie, the title sequence appears to deviate from the TV show and the Mission Impossible 1 movie. The titles don't appear to have anything to do with the movie. However... Yeah, now, let me stop you there because uh, in, the, in MI1 and in the TV show... The titles would show little clips of what was happening, little scenes, one second or two second little right. shots of what's going to happen in the movie. Yeah, it doesn't appear first time through on this that you're getting that. However, later in the movie, Ethan tells Luther the myth of Bellerophon, who was a prince who killed Chimera, a monster with the head of a lion and the tail of a serpent. Images of this are what we see in the background of the title sequence. So this is important. So they deviate from showing us any action in the titles, but the background is still very relevant. John Woo says that he sees Ethan Hunt as Bellerophon, representing good, and Sean Ambrose as Chimera, 
representing evil. Now, of course, this is based on real Greek mythology. Chimera, a fire-breathing female monster resembling a lion in the forepart, a goat in the middle, and a dragon behind, is real in Greek mythology. Remember, the doctor said in the beginning, therefore, in a search for our hero, Bellerophon, we created a monster, Chimera. And in mythology, how was Chimera killed? The Chimera was finally killed and defeated by Bellerophon with the help of Pegasus, since Pegasus could fly. Bellerophon shot Chimera from the air, safe from her heads and breath. Now, keep this in mind as to how Ethan Hunt approaches the destruction of this virus. It is very nicely tied together. Yeah. While at a party in Seville, Spain, a troupe of flamenco dancers put on a show. If you ever go to Seville and see a flamenco show, do it. I'm not a huge fan of dance shows at all, but I did go to a flamenco show when I was in Seville, and I was very impressed. It's a different style of dance than what I'm used to seeing here in the U.S. It's very energetic. I really liked because it was just so I think that would be fun. And the rhythmic beating of the, the shoes and everything. It was. I, I was impressed. Yeah, I think it would be fun. Anyway, Ethan Hunt sees Naya at this dance, and they look at each other, and they're moving around the stage. A dancer spins, and Naya disappears. She's headed upstairs to steal a Bulgari necklace. Mm -hmm. Now, according to John Woo, the dance scene was inspired or influenced by the dance at the gym scene in the movie West Side Story. Actually, it'd be in the play as well. The idea came from West Side Story. I wanted to make it a very sexy Love at first sight moment, Wu says. Uh. The isolation of Tony and Maria is much more dramatic than what Wu did with Ethan and Naya. But there's definitely a similar feel to what they did in West Side Story. Yeah, I think it's a similar feel. I didn't watch Mission Impossible 2 and think, wow, he fell in love with her immediately, though. So, But that's another thing about this whole thing being a love story. But, okay. Let's... He keep, John Wu and his, and his director's <laughs> commentary keep saying this is a love story. I know. I know. I think he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's only the director. <laughs> what does he know? Let's get him on the show. All right. Uh, yeah, this whole love at first sight thing is... Okay, all right. As part of the heist, Ethan and Naya end up in a bathtub, lying in it to hide. <sighs> the dialogue here is rather cheeky. Naya asks Ethan, do you mind if I'm on top? Because <laughs> at the moment she wasn't. This scene feels more like a scene from a Pierce Brosnan or maybe an early Roger Moore James Bond film than most Mission Impossible scenes that we see. Naya comes off like a Bond girl here, in a sense. In the first film, there really isn't a female role like this. Maybe you could say Claire, but that was a different kind of feel. John Woo says that he wanted this movie to be more of a love story than a spy movie. Me, it's a spy movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. But Notorious was a little bit of both, too. So, you know. Yeah, it was. It was. Actually, Notorious was more of a love movie than, than this, for yeah. sure. So, yeah. So, anyway, there is the mandatory car chase in, <laughs> in the movie. It's a spy movie. Where... Where Ethan is chasing Naya in her Porsche. It's a car chase. You got to have a car chase thing in there. And, and they chase around. They're dangerous stuff. He's trying to get her to interact with him and, and do something for him for the Mission Impossible team. 
and yet they're crashing into each other and risking each other's lives. I, I just thought this whole car chase scene was gratuitous. I hated it. That's my least favorite part of this movie, and they should have <laughs> skipped it. Like, we're going to skip it now. Yeah, but when she crashes, he helps her. She's, like, f- almost ready to fall over a cliff. Yeah, damsel in distress. Got to have that. And that's where they connect. Yeah. And she succumbs to him, literally. Yeah. And, and I think part of this might have been put in there because it really had a very similar feel to James Bond and, and Xenia on top in their car chase yeah. in GoldenEye. Yeah. They didn't yeah. talk across the cars here. But there was this flirtatious stuff that was going on yeah. as part of the chase scene. So yeah. I think it was really a nod to Goldeneye. Yeah, maybe it was a nod to Goldeneye, but this deserves no more conversation, I don't think, because <laughs> it was gratuitous. <laughs> and I think, ah, let's move okay, on. So let's move on to the next scene, Dan. <laughs> yeah. So when Ethan meets his boss, who's yeah. Mission Commander Swanbeck, played by Anthony Hopkins, he's given more details on his mission. Now, John Woo initially wanted Ian McKellen for this part, but Sir Ian was involved with another project, so he couldn't do it. And Swanbeck tells Hunt that this is Mission Impossible, which it's the, it's the Impossible Mission Force. The movie's called Mission Impossible. But they'd never used on the TV show or in Mission Impossible 1 the phrase Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. And here Swanbeck's telling him this is Mission Impossible. The screenwriters for MI2 here were Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga. They also wrote the screenplay for Star Trek First Contact, where they included for the first time the word Star Trek. Uh, I guess they just needed to remember what movie they were writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Swanbeck had an excuse because Ethan Hunt was saying, hey, this, this is going to be pretty tough to be able to convince her to be doing this. And he said, tough, it should, that should be a piece of cake for this. this for you, tough. This is Mission Impossible. So he had an excuse. I like that. I like how they worked it in. I thought it was okay. Okay, so Ambrose and Hall had a relationship, and she had walked away in the past. Mm -hmm. He's been wanting her back, so that's why they think she'll be the quickest way to locate Ambrose. Swanbeck tells Hunt, make sure she continues to see him, get Ambrose to confide in her, and then report to you. Swanbeck misled Hunt, misled into thinking that he was recruiting her for her skills as a thief. Hunt says, no, she has no training for this. So Mission Commander Swanbeck says to Hunt here in response, something that's really out of line. <laughs> this, is said, quite a, this is quite a line. It's quite a line. What she is is a woman. Go to bed with a man, lie to him. She's got all the training she needs. Oh, uh, hey, we think James Bond is being misogynist? Uh, holy jeez. Man. I think Swanbeck uh, takes this to the extreme in this conversation with Hunt. Yeah, we have to remember this movie is 20 years old. Yeah. I don't know if you could get away with that line today, but they definitely did then. I'm thinking that would be not appearing in any more Mission Impossible or Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> so Swanbeck ends up giving Hunt uh, this digital camera, which shows the plane crash scene and the information on Sean Ambrose, yeah. which was the guy she just left, and that he was the mastermind of this whole thing. So Swanbeck believes by showing her this, that'll be the incentive for her to try to help. Right. Which reminds me of Thunderball again with Domino, where he shows her the dog tags from Francois, her brother, and his watch, and convinces her that, hey, it was Largo who killed your brother. 
and then she's going to be on his side now. This is the same kind of setup. So this is where Ethan shows Naya the pictures of the airplane crash. Yeah. Where Ambrose, who Naya used to love, created this crash. Yeah. And that was really the hook to get her on board. She has to go seduce Ambrose and find out what she can about Chimera and Bellerophon. Yeah. Again, like we said, reminds us of Domino in Thunderball. Okay, so we then move to the team being put together, and the team monitors Naya and Ambrose, because, of course, they've got the technology to just do this. They did implant something into Naya so they could track her. And And only they can track her. And only they can, it's actually only one computer can One computer can track Which just cracks me up because that's important later. Now, we get Luther back. Yeah. Anytime you can bring Ving Rhames into a movie, yeah. you've got to love it. Yeah. Now, where Harry Palmer loved his gourmet food, Bond enjoys the bon vivants, Luther enjoys his clothes. In this scene, he steps in some sheep poop, for lack of a better word. <laughs> And complains about the fact that he's wearing $800 Gucci shoes. Later, he complains, that punk put a hole in my Versace. (laughs) You've just got to love Luther. (laughs) All right, yeah, he's cool. I mean, he comes off as this tough guy, but boy, does he like his clothes. Oh, boy, uh, product placement, you think? I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite sure, though, that you'd want your product advertised stepping in you berries. (laughs) I don't know. You get your name out there thinking, oh, shit, great stuff. All right, so the other member of the team is somebody called Billy Baird, and he was the helicopter pilot. And I personally thought this was a fairly uneventful role, and I was really glad they came up with Benji, Simon Pegg's character, in MI3 and beyond. Yeah, but I like Billy because he was their local contact in Australia to help them with this mission. So, yeah, it's a smaller role, but I think it was an appropriate role and big enough, I thought. So I thought it was okay. When you see it compared to what they then do with Simon Pegg's character, it's, yeah, well, yeah. it's lacking. I think appropriate. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh. All right. So Ambrose, he has Naya at the house, and he brings her in via boat. So he's at the house, and the boat comes sweeping through, and she's on a speedboat. And the way they came in on that speedboat, Naya's white top and her scarf, it really reminded me of when Naomi meets Bond and Agent Triple X who are posing as Mr. and Mrs. Sterling in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes, she's wearing a white top and jeans instead of a brown bikini with a sheer white cover-up, but I really think the scenes have a very similar feel to them. Yeah, it reminded me exactly of that scene as well. Yeah, I like that they planted a non-traceable chip in Naya that only can be tracked from IMF's computer. One computer, like you said earlier. One computer, the laptop. Yeah, and when Ambrose's goons electronically scan her, from a distance, as she walks with Ambrose into the house, they say she is clean and add, all cats are. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, in Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's Bond gets a locator chip implanted in his arm. Yeah. But when they scan his arm, you can see it. Yeah, yeah. So this is more advanced technology than what was used with Bond. Yeah, I just love the line, all cats are, because it says a lot of stuff there that we're not going to go into. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Ambrose's lead henchman is Hugh Stamp. I can't believe this wasn't borrowed from a Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies, where the lead henchman is named Stamper. Stamper! (laughs) When we meet Stamp, Ambrose says he's suspicious of Naya, as is Stamp. 
And this scene shows Ambrose's nasty side as he cuts off this, as he cuts off the tip of Stamp's finger with a cigar cutter. It's like, oh, that had to hurt. That act becomes pretty damn important later in the movie. Okay, so we leave Ambrose's place and now we go to the racetrack, the Royal Randwick Racecourse in Sydney. Now, this is a scene that sets up the monetary part of what Ambrose is doing with Bellerophon in Biosite Pharmaceuticals. We see from a memory chip what, da- what damage Chimera can do when they're looking at a video at the racetrack. It's a fun scene other than that. One nice thing about the racetrack in a movie like this is there are lots of people around, lots of action, and the ability to have a bunch of small things happen in relative close proximity that others won't notice. Biosite Pharmaceuticals is the company that Dr. Nikorovich worked for. So now we're seeing the head CEO of Biosite Pharmaceuticals meeting with Ambrose at the track. Yeah, there's some, there's some cool scenes in there. And as you're going through the movie again, you'll see that that's, a, that's one of the fun parts of the movie because it does tell you a lot of stuff in a very short time. And it was a clever way of doing it. Here we see Naya's thief and spy skills. It ends up she's not very good at either and pretty much blows it because she returns the memory chip to Ambrose's wrong jacket pocket. Wait, wait, wait. She's not very good at it. First of all, she got the envelope with the camera chip. That, that was pretty good. Yeah, she picked his pocket. That was, okay. yeah, that was mandatory. Second, she got it to Ethan, who transmitted the pictures to Luther in the van. That's what they needed to do. And third, I thought she did return it to the correct pocket. But later, Ambrose says it's the right pocket when he's telling Stamp. Did he switch it or did she screw up? No, no, she screwed it up. Did she? And, and it's actually noticeable in the way it happens. And Ambrose knows it happens at the time. Really? Yeah. So if you watch when she puts it back, she puts it in his right pocket because she comes in from the left. And Ambrose noticed it right away. If you look at him, he pauses. He was holding his binoculars and he pulls them back and there's a, a musical thing that happens to say, hey, this is important. So he knew something was up and why he later confronted her with the Ethan Hunt mask and the voice change that happens later. Mm. So he knew okay. she was doing something now. And remember, he just cut off Stamp's finger saying when Stamp was like, can we trust her? <laughs> and now he knows he can't trust her. Yeah. All right. So anyway, she accomplishes some of the mission here. And before she gives the camera card to Hunt, she turns around to face hunt and she wasn't supposed to turn around because he's telling her don't turn around because they're going to see you. And Hunt was not very happy that she turned around because he didn't want these guys, Stamp or Ambrose, to see this happening. Yeah, but to me, that's kind of funny because it's like, okay, I'm sitting here not looking at anybody, but I'm talking. Yeah. Isn't it better if they're looking at each other talking? Yeah, I mean, it could have been a casual conversation. But anyway, she turns to Hunt and she says to him, what are you going to do, spank me? Again, <laughs> they've got to force some of these these sexual innuendos in there. and The cheeky interplay. Yeah. So there's another line. There you go. Uh, all cats are clean. Uh, what are you doing here? Can I be on top? <laughs> Whatever. Okay. All right. Let's move on. All right. Let's move on. So Naya and Ethan, they meet outside Ambrose House. Or do they? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of masks in this movie, so you've got to pay attention, especially in this scene. So Naya's running, Ethan grabs her, and she hugs him. We then cut to McCloy, who's the head of Biosite, in what looks like a hospital bed, and he sees Dr. Nikorovich, who tells him that he, McCloy, is infected with Chimera. 
The key fact in the scene is that McCloy says to, do- to the doctor, how would I know he needed to be treated with Bellerophon within 20 hours? McCloy had Chimera created to have something that Bellerophon could cure, which would allow him to make a lot of money. And it's really obvious in this scene. He says, I'm here to make money. Yeah, of course, this was really Hunt who pulls off the mask of the doctor's face and the voice changer. And then they cut back to Ethan and Naya outside Sean's house. So oh, they're supposed to be happening at the same time. How's Ethan talking to McCloy if he's also at the house talking to Naya? Yeah, it violates the laws of identity and non-contradiction. Ah. <laughs> 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 He can't be in two places at the same time, can he? Naya tells Ethan that she thought he was there to take her out of there. And Ethan tells Naya, this is a critical part now and do whatever Ambrose tells you. In other words, stay. So it's a conflict of what we heard before. Then we see that Ethan wasn't in two places at the same time. So thank God that law of non-contradiction was not broken. (laughs) And Ambrose removes the mask as Ethan. And the voice changer. It's Ambrose, of course. So he had an Ethan mask and voice changer at the beginning of the movie on the plane. And he's got one here fooling Naya into thinking she was talking to Ethan and validating that Naya was there helping Ethan out. So in a discussion with Luther, Hunt realizes that Ambrose doesn't have the virus. And Ambrose knows that he doesn't have the virus. Ethan then says he needs to go to buy a site to kill the virus. And then we're home free. Yeah, there you go. This is immediately followed up by conversation with Stamp and Ambrose, where Stamp tells Ambrose that Hunt stung McCloy tonight and that Hunt will be going to buy a site. I thought, again, wow, there's a lot of people that know a lot of stuff going on here. But, okay. (laughs) Then what has to be a very strange feeling for McCloy, he's dropped off back at his house by Billy, who makes him think that he had passed out in the limo. Yeah. So the IMF team is about to initiate their plan to attack the biocyte plant and kill the virus. So this looks like a great spot to wrap up part one of Mission Impossible 2. So we'll pick up part two with the attack on biocyte. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com as we wrap up part one of Mission Impossible 2. Join us next podcast for part two. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Go do that now. And we thank you for listening. Thanks a lot. Thank you.